cultures of assembly. Cultures of Assembly is a project for spaces of agonism and democracies in the making. It is generated by friction, negotiation and conflict, where the public sphere opens to new social and political practices. We engage in the discourse and spatial politics in the physical and the non-physical public spheres. We are Francis Kain, Maria Maric, Markus Missen, and Cesar Reyes. Today, we are focusing on European institutions with Denis Paul. Episode number three. Well, I'm I'm based in Brussels, and it's it's sort of funny that my kind of research object started actually from living here um, at the first time when I came here in 2012 after my studies in Hanover. I started working um, at Dogma Architects in, in Brussels and they, their office was located in the European quarter. Um, and I was sort of astonished actually already by the fact that, you know, everyone knows the Kreml or the Reichstag or like, you know, iconic um, representative buildings of, of political systems, could I even say so. But no one knows actually how the or really few people actually know how the European Parliament or the Commission um, or the European Council as a building looks like. Like you see them very often on the news. You see what news reports being recorded from Brussels, but it's it's always just little fragments sometimes of the building. So those buildings actually lack any kind of iconographic, symbolic presence. Um, and that what that's what really intrigued me, in that in in starting that research, this question like. How does it come that no one knows why these buildings look like they look like? <laughs> so, so just to to go back one step. So, um, when you're talking about about Brussels and the very beginning. So, if we go to the very beginning, what triggered your initial interest in the European Union and especially uh, as a spatial and institutional construct? Mm -hmm. Like, I think um, you know, it's sort of an out of it has some autobiographic relations because um, like I was born in the Soviet Union in Kazakhstan in Almaty and um, my grandfather used to work there in a brick factory like moving kind of helping building literally the, the Soviet Union um, and it was due to a political kind of reason that we could re-immigrate to Germany in the early 90s so I was sort of raised with being moved through political systems and in the end of the day the European Union allowed me for the possibility to study abroad, to study in Leuven and in Antwerp and it was first and foremost that kind of um, interest in the bigger larger political system of the European Union that triggered my interest um, also somehow out of an autobiographic or a biographic kind of uh, um, relation to it. So. And, and literally, like, you know, all those other political systems in which I've been growing up with had a very strong, I think, architectural ambition or even spatial ambition of how to build and design their, um, their political communities. So I was, yeah, I was really interested in how actually the European Union also in a historic sense tried to design and try to shape um, through also spatial um, tools and methods, let's say, 
that bigger political community. And what was the first example that struck you as a kind of spatial design object, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Like I think looking really um, historically much more into, into the data, the first object that really um, struck me where I could really see that there was a political ambition to design not only an economic union or also an industrial union, but also a political community, wasn't already in the early 50s. The European Community for Coal and Steel actually designed steel architecture and had a big ambition to actually design a, a kind of a steel architecture across Europe to bind architecture and the architecture production into the bigger industrial complex of the European Community. So pushing for a steel architecture that could be industrialized was at the end of the day not only an economic or industrial um, project, but it was also a larger um, political project because these kind of steel architectures, they supposed to serve also um, migrating miners in the mining areas um, along the Ruhr area and the kind of strong mining area around the Benelux. So I think like this was one of the first objects that really struck me in which I felt like that's a design of geopolitics, if you could say so, through architecture. And, and there is a larger energy question, of course, related to that, to that discourse, because integrating, let's say, architecture in a kind of a bigger steel and coal industrial complex, um, you really feel, okay, that, that there is actually a building of a sort of a carbon-based Europe um, on the run there in the early 50s. So that's, I think, like a bigger question that, that struck me around, you know, how... Um, how certain principles of modernism, of standardization, of rationalization of architecture actually came really in line with a bigger mm, political project of the European coal and steel community. So in your writing, I was really fascinated by the role that Saarbrücken plays of all places. And uh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of the listeners are not aware of this. So could you please tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, You know, in the beginning of the European coal and steel community in the early 50s, there was, of course, the discussion of where to locate the capital of that, you know, um, political entity. Sort of the capital is, is very often the most symbolic, um, symbolic thing with what we realize political systems and how the way they are, let's say, communicated to a broader public and the way how a broader public kind of identifies themselves with that um, capital construction and um, at, the, at the very beginning um, Saarbrücken was in, in question or the Saar area was in question to be actually stated as a, you know, a territory that always fluctuated between several wars between France and Germany so it was a kind of symbolically loaded territory that um, back then supposed to symbolize um, a piece of the European community and a kind of the European project as a peace project, to neutralize that territory and um, um, have a kind of a similar situation as Washington DC to create a kind of a neutral state um, among the European states that um, supposed to locate and host actually um, uh, the capital city. Um, back then it was, it was really um, pushed in Saarbrücken itself by a local, let's say, architectural discourse around um, uh, around the, the building council, around Otto Renner. Um, 
and they organized an architecture competition um, and an exhibition called uh, Montan Hauptstadt, so mining capital. And the fact that, you know, mining actually gets a capital, it's not actually Europe gets a capital, but mining um, strikes me very much and is kind of a, also in the, in the light of the bigger Anthropocene question, you know, how you actually create a resource capital. It's not necessarily like a political capital, but it really started to be a question of resources as well. Um, and the second thing that was interesting about, um, about the discourse uh, in Saarbrücken and the architectural competition that was launched in 55 um, to, to actually design such a capital that um, you could say so modernism back then was really a kind of a driving force in how to shape that, uh, that capital. You know, you had this whole um, era, let's say, of the, of the French presence um, in, in Saarbrücken that really tried to overbuild a kind of, a, a, um, you know, a building history that was shaped by the Third Reich um, back then to overbuild it with a, with a new kind of modernism around Puinguisson and really kind of actors that were, um, that were present in the, um, in the Ministère de Reconstruction um, Urbain, MRU, um, in France, and how that was actually really a, you know, um, kind of a modernist-driven institution. Um, but I, it was feeling like this, you know, it was at the end not so much a question of style if you look at the broader, a broader history of, um, of also, you know, um, Europe also as an energy and resource question. It seems that the modernist principles of um, an architecture that is entirely being, uh, um, uh, um, you know, adaptive to industrial changes, to being entirely connective to, to industrial production processes, um, that this type of modernist language and modernist approach is really fitted with the broader political um, context of, of the European Coal and Steel Union. So back then, indeed, Saarbrücken was, was into, into question to become kind of the European mining capital. Um, and unfortunately, that plan uh, kind of failed as soon as uh, there was a bigger question about the European defense community going on at the same time. Um, and at the end of the day, it became a kind of binational question between France and Germany, whether, whether that could be actually, and whether that could be kind of given off of both of the countries as a, as a neutral territory. But one thing that I didn't understand, so Saarbrücken was considered to be neutral or what constituted its neutrality status? Yeah, indeed, it was uh, it was really uh, a discussion whether it could become neutral. You know, back then it was really it was still on French on French uh, territory. Um, the Germans actually had a historical stake on it, and in the end of the day, in '56, I think, um, if I remember correctly, they had a a petition going on in the population of Sa of Saarland, and uh, it was very very like. You know, I think it would, the result was something like 49% against 51% uh, who voted for Saarbrücken being actually, or the Saarland becoming a German territory. And with that vote, um, the entire question of whether that could become actually a neutral territory um, was, out of, was out of stake. So um, it was only for that period in which there was the discussion of having Saarbrücken as a neutral territory. And then that whole kind of capital question started again in 58. Um, that's where, that's where 
Saarbrücken, Luxembourg and um, Strasbourg have been elected as you know, temporary capital uh, cities or temporary seats of the European institutions. But then, Dennis, when we look at the chronology, somehow I have the sensation that the year 1989 has been, I mean, obviously worldwide uh, quite a key year because there is the fall of the Berlin Wall. We also remember the protests on the Tiananmen Square and this kind of events, but at a smaller scale. I know that um, 1989 is also the year of the creation of the Brussels capital region. Did this somehow was also a key moment that led to the implementation of European institution within the city due to, I suppose, the real estate condition that kind of like was prepared in order to um, implement indeed um, all these European institutions. I mean, is it really the case? Because today when we see the result, you were talking about symbolic images a bit earlier. And indeed, I mean, we see somehow a kind of like a try to create the symbolic images through architecture, but in the end, there are conflicting image, quite postmodern, very historicist images of buildings and architectural elements. So what's your point of view on this? There may be many questions within one question. <laughs> you can choose the one you want to answer to. <laughs> Thank you very much for this for this really intriguing question of you know pointing it out to exactly a, um, a specific date and a paradigmatic shift I think that happened in Europe um, a paradigmatic shift which uh, we still kind of dealing with today and I think today the kind of situation in in Ukraine is, is really speaking out of these political tensions that you know raised out of that specific date or specific year that you mentioned um, a very like um, crucial aspect about that year is of course that there were already good discussions about potential um, raise in member states um, going on in the European Union towards the end of the 1980s. Of course, there was a speculation and a hope that you know other countries, if there would be such a something such an, an end of the Soviet Union, would join the European Community and would actually. Um, um, uh, create actually potential the potential of of a europe that we kind of experience today um in brussels at a very local scale um this kind of fall of the um of the of the berlin wall immediately went in hand with a bigger speculation project that was of course going on already beforehand um you know it is not only institutions who are moving to Brussels or to Brussels in case, let's say, a new institution um, in, uh, is based here. But there are a lot of non-state actors, NGOs, consultancy companies, even like literally companies themselves, um, joining or being actually in a spatial proximity uh, to to the institutions that are actually pushing for a bigger real estate development um, in a in a in a city like Brussels. And it was precisely around this time when the discussion started whether Brussels would be able to have, you know, a new European Parliament. Before, the European Parliament was always located in Strasbourg and actually between Strasbourg and Luxembourg. Um, in Luxembourg, on the, you know, on the Ash Mountain, you still have that, uh, <laughs> that kind of 
parliament building that was only used for a couple of years and then it was abandoned, this kind of hexagonal shape um, uh, there um, on the Kirchberg. So um, in a way, this was uh, uh, a very crucial year, let's say, on the local scale that in the end had effects on a, on a broader scale. Um, and it all started off uh, with the fact that you know, a few investors around the BNC Paribas group and others gathered together in Brussels to, um, to literally prepare everything to have the European Parliament in Brussels itself. There was actually no formal reason why it shouldn't kind of, you know, stay between Strasbourg and Luxembourg. Um, and these preparations um, lead to the fact that the building designed for the European Parliament was actually... Um, you know, until the European Parliament actually had a, a, a built building in Brussels, they couldn't even sign a lease contract. So the whole thing was an entire speculation project. And if, in case actually the European Parliament wouldn't be able to sign the lease contract, it would it could kind of serve also Coca-Cola headquarters or anything else. So you see, uh, you know, the creation of of a building that was in a sort of the most generic, but at the same time, highly specific building ever, ever built for the, um, you know, for the European institutions. Uh, and, and in a way, the potential growth, of course, of the, of the, um, of the European community, and then the first extension or the first kind of bigger extension after the Maastricht Treaty in 91, um, really pushed for that. Uh, you know, need also of a bigger European Parliament that would have more seats, um, that would have more offices, that would have more um, delegation, meeting rooms, etc. Um, than the one in Strasbourg. Um, so this was a really a crucial moment in which uh, in which you know several paradigmatic changes um, happened on the on the level of the European Parliament. Before that, the European Parliament was actually perfectly situated in Strasbourg in the Palais d'Europe, um, which, which is also a very interesting building and still meetings are going on in that building. But um, it is, was just like from the size, not suitable anymore for the European Parliament. And that legitimated the building in Brussels. So on an institutional scale, do you consider the Parliament to be the most relevant, let's say, infrastructure of Europe? Or? Well, I wouldn't say it's the most relevant because, you know, if you look at um, the power that other institutions have, like for instance the European Council, um, with the gatherings of the you know of the heads and of states and governments, has actually a much stronger political power than the European Parliament. The European Parliament is an interesting institution in itself because it represents um, the European citizens, and in a way. Um, the Parliament itself made itself through the history more relevant uh, or more and more relevant. And um, uh, particularly interesting is how the Parliament used also its presence in the media, for instance, to do that. Um, so in the, in the late 1970s, it was really the European Parliament, or actually in 76, to be precise, the European Parliament, it was the first uh, national or the first Parliament that broadcasted its assemblies uh, entirely in television. Um, there was no national parliament who was dealing with that. And actually, if you look at, you know, the big discussions that were going on, for instance, in the, um, in the House of Parliament in the UK, uh, there was actually a fear of television entering that, you know, 
closed chamber in which politicians could still freely negotiate and talk about whatever they like. Um, the television was literally seen as an evil institution that would kind of bend our old, whole political processes. And, and, you know, the European Parliament itself, it was really, uh, it was really avant-garde, if you want to say so, to really create a new European citizenship and to address this new European citizens through television. Um, and especially because you had the first elections of the parliament in 79 uh, going on, um, advertisement and presence of the, you know, of the political institution in television was really, really kind of um, uh, a really big thing. And the European parliament, it pushed for um, a European neutral news channel, which we still have as a kind of commercial, uh, let's say, successor of that, which is Euronews. Um, it, it pushed for, for a few, uh, let's say, uh, avant-garde TV projects in which other broadcasters joined, like Euricon, like, you know, European satellite um, television, and still uh, Europe by satellite, EBS, is a kind of, is a, is a really main distributor of, um, of, of European broadcasting services um, throughout, throughout that, that union. It's really... Right. Uh, yes, and uh, just um, triggers my curiosity how, you know, the performativity of these sets that you're saying that the European Union was kind of uh, um, uh, innovating in the way of display the interiors. Because, yes, at urban scale, when you as a, let's say, a, a, a pedestrian approach those complexes, you don't really feel welcome. You know, it's this kind of uh, anonymity, but also immensity, the buildings that prevent you to get getting inside. So uh, I'm really curious how this, um, uh, let's say, uh, will to communicate what's happening inside came first, and then who or how was decided this performativity of the TV set, because it seems they are uh, meticulously calculated to communicate also a message. Have you explored somehow these uh, um, these aspects of of mm -hmm. the media sets? Yes, in a way, you know, um, especially yeah, in the European Parliament, there is a shift as soon as television comes into the building, actually, um, because if you look at the very early Parliament, the Maison d'Europe, it had uh, in 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 Strasbourg, it had actually uh, let's say one. Um, uh, one audience room that was uh, reserved for, um, you know, radio broadcasters and journalists, etc. And it had at the sides uh, uh, a public access, so the public could literally enter that building and uh, and and see um, actually, you know, plenary sessions going on. But it would it could also uh, um, disturb this the this session. So. There are um, documentations, and I found documentations of manifestations going on um, in the building, uh, in which, like, literally, citizens um, uh, stopped the plenary sessions from going on, and you know, threw banners and everything at the at the par at the, um, uh, at the parliamentarians. Um, as soon as television comes in, of course, the, the audience can stay at home. <laughs> so in the in the Palais d'Europe, the building that was built after the Maison d'Europe, um, that was much bigger, etc., television was in, directly integrated as a, you know, as a main, uh, uh, as a main media element, let's say, in the building itself. Um, 
and and so and i found also um uh, through my research let's say uh, um, an example in which um, nixon was present at the european parliament holding a speech actually in the official kind of parliament cameras were actually central and other broadcaster cam cameras of private broadcasters they could be positioned on the top um, um, on the top of that of that audience hall and uh, uh, you have actually two sort of videos um, in the end of the day distributed through it uh, the media um, of the European camera let's say only showed Nixon let's say in a frontal kind of you know phase range and he he held his speech and it was an applause and everything but if you look at other private broadcaster uh, images, they were actually um, parliamentarians from the Green parties that were demonstrating against the war that was being raised. And, you know, these, these media showed actually an entirely different speech, <laughs> which was going on. Um, so, in a way, it's a, I think it's an intriguing example of, you know, how the position of even the, uh, the, these cameras is highly political. And it's highly chosen upon, we know, what kind of uh, image they transmit to the to the public, and um, and indeed this question of the public being present in the in the plenary sessions or in the parliament itself or how transparent such an institution can be to the public um, is I think more and more kind of um, questioned and more and more requested through the presence of, of of our new forms of media of social media of like suddenly in which you know. Uh, parliamentary members themselves becoming actually the better journalists than journalists themselves because suddenly they can you know tweet things or post videos from the plenary session to a broader public and it has really shifted i think it, its entire uh, categories in which how the public actually has access to information to which it otherwise um, didn't have before um, and there is actually a competition going on an architecture competition on the new European Parliament building in Brussels. Um, the results are not published yet, but um, interestingly to read, I had an insight in the, you know, in the in the in the competition brief and in the program that was asked in the building. Uh, there was a high discussion about, you know, what role, well, or actually a very precise description about, like where media journalists enter, where they are positioned, where the wagons are, the you know the TV wagons are placed, etc. But if you would read through it, you would think, hey, this is an entirely antiquated notion of what journalism actually is nowadays, with the presence of of different form of social media and all those entirely distributed and and let's say scattered forms of information flows that we now perceive. Um, so I think. It's a big it's a big architectural challenge at the end of the day, I think, also as well, of how to deal with the with the presence of the new media in the European Parliament. So ca can we talk about media as a new form of government here? Hmm. That's a very that's a very good question, because, um, you know, if you look at uh, the bigger um, concept of how uh, the notion of, of governance itself developed, governance um, as a as a term was actually uh, introduced also by by political scientists in the in the 80s um, of someone called also uh, James Rosenau who argued that we have actually a new form of governance which is like a governance without governments like um, there are so many actors in which which actually have to, nowadays are are um, dealing with politics in which um, you know NGOs representatives of, of organizations, international institutions, 
um, governmental organizations, like there are so many actors in which we are not able anymore to kind of, you know, speak about govern governance in a kind of classical statist way of, you know, the Machiavellian threefold of the legislative, the judicative and the executive. Um, and I think I would totally, um, totally subscribe to that, to that hypothesis that media has actually, you know, changed many categories of the way how politics are, are performed, actually. So I would really insist that, um, uh, that especially that, you know, distributed notion of media, which is not anymore a kind of very, you know, controlled way of what messages arrive where and so on, but it's entirely obscured and, uh, and obfuscated of, you know, who can manipulate data, who has access to metadata and how uh, messages can be sent and, and actually, you know, um, reach out to a very targeted group of, of audience that would then distribute these targeted messages among their peers, etc. Um, I think this has drastically shifted of how, especially also politics on an international level work. And um, I think this is, this is very crucial if we talk about governance. And I think governance is a really right term for it. It, it really derives actually from management. It derives from a language that was used before in companies to argue for a non-hierarchical distribution of power in companies um, in, a, in, a, in the 60s and 70s. And it really entered the political sphere as a terminology that would describe more adequately um, of how political powers are distributed nowadays. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you refer to kind of traditional journalism as a kind of old school form of um, let's say, mobilizing information. Um, I'm wondering, when we talk about architecture in the context of your work, do you would you still consider this also a medium of governing or does it sit completely outside this realm? What, what do you think? Yeah, I think like um, there is a, a kind of a precise quote that summarized that approach by Reinhold Martin, the architecture historian who was at Columbia University. Um, would argue, you know, architecture is a medium among other media. So I think this is really crucial that we we kind of step out of the of the of the idea that you know architecture is just a container or it's just best of the case a symbolic container for a program going on, but it's it's highly integrated and highly dependent upon other uh, other forms of media. I think you know um, photography, television. Um, electricity, like all those, you know, those media have always directly interacted um, with uh, with architecture in a historic sense. And I think, like being nowadays, if we still want to um, uh, have, let's say, a relevant and impactful discussion about what architecture is able of and what architecture can do, we have to consider it as a medium among other media, and it's it's you know also direct relation with. Uh, with these other channels. <laughs> no, it, uh, I'm really intrigued how at, at the end, uh, European Commission somehow, somehow become a kind of um, apparatus controlling different means of, of multimedia and also the data and its distribution. Um, it, it, it really shifted... Uh, the understanding we have about architecture because 
Um, instead of thinking of containers that you mentioned, we should also think of the possibility of, a, let's say, interact in these legal structures of control of data circulation. Do you think there is a space for architecture in that control or we are just spectators? Hmm. Yeah, very good, good question because, um, you know, maybe to give an example of where this, where I kind of discursively locate also the, the discussion of the, what you mentioned, the GDPR, no? the, the way of controlling actually the privacy of data in the European Union. Um, it was in a workshop that I used to run, um, used to run the AA Visiting School um, House of Politics, which was an international workshop for students which used the medium of film to explore the European institutions, the buildings of the parliament, um, the commission and the council in Brussels. And when we um, were present with the students in 2016 in the, um, in the European Parliament, it was right in the midst of Brexit discussions going on um, at that period. So what we observed was that, um, you know, the kind of first thing that the, the European Parliament did was to set up um, a, a, a provisorical TV set in front of the um, plenary hall because they suddenly feel like it was really necessary um, for uh, parliamentarians to immediately communicate um, with, the, with the European citizens. And, and in a way, um, that moment in which you know, this temporary thing was set up very provisorically, it remained for the whole time and now it's actually still an integral uh, uh, thing in front of the, parliament, the plenary hall. Um, and I think it was in that moment in which, uh, in which the European Union realized, and the European Commission, especially, I think, in this sense, as an actor, um, that we have to do something against those global forces that are otherwise, you know, just kind of an entirely anarchic way collecting every kind of data that can be collected, that can be <laughs> that can be used in a in an entirely uncontrolled way. Um, and they can be actually, you know, leading to political changes. And I think the Brexit gave us a, a very strong example of how that, you know, immediately affected um, uh, uh, the life of citizens um, at the European European Union. So, in a way, one could say, um, you know, yes, uh, architecture is somehow a tool of that of that media construction, but still. I think we can do something about it because that, you know, temporary installation that was, you know, th there weren't any architects involved in that at the first time. They were like, it was just placed there um, by, by the audiovisual department of the, um, of the European Parliament and it was, you know, fine to be functioned in this way and being connected to cables, etc. Um, but if we think about it in a broader spectrum of how an architectural installation could actually trigger awareness, change, um, and the perception of, of certain um, certain processes, then suddenly we have you know we have a different different notion of those politics. And maybe to exemplify that also in a in a historical example was um, when it was in the in the in the uh, it was in the mid sixties I think if I don't mistake it um, a discussion going on about the renovation of the House of Parliaments in the UK. There was a really interesting um, um, proposal by Cedric Price. And Cedric Price, he said, like, all right, you know, 
politics are actually changing with all different medias, with television, every 30 years. And he said, like, we don't have to think about buildings that last over centuries because that thing that we have there, <laughs> actually positioned in the Westminster Palace, was built for a form of politics like in the, in the 19th century. <laughs> We're totally out of that. Um, and he argued for a much more a kind of a media, you know, like a media parliament that would be adaptive, that would be accessible through public ramps and even more. He thought about the library in which a central computer would be positioned. And that central computer was actually a means to give public access to governmental data. It was really to make, you know, governmental data open source, open access, available for everyone and being able to inform citizens like literally about in data of what, what's going on. And then there was this, um, he planned a kind of a, 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 a direct you know, um, a telephone in which you could call a parliamentarian and call and tell him, hey, look, I found that type of data. Can you do something about that? Or that relates to this and this, you know, situation in, uh, in our population. Can you do something about it? So it was really meant as a, as a really an, a kind of an interactive tool set uh, and at a place, a physical place in which, you know, people could, you know, relate this data world to the physical world that was going on outside. Yeah, it's a super interesting example, I think. Also because historically, I mean, it relates to the moment when in the UK the Open University was formed. And that, of course, was also a very democratic move in terms of thinking about how to basically uh, creating a horizontal rather than vertical structure in terms of uh, national education through basically uh, media change. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think also, you know, Price Think Belt project um, directly related to that of, you know, how new forms of media would actually change our entire um, pedagogy system and the way how, you know, people educate themselves and try, trying to push for this kind of idea of a self, uh, you know, self-made learning in which everyone or people are more responsible and more actually entitled to, to define their own ways of learning. And I think, like, it's a particularly interesting period in which, you know, I think... Mm, you could even maybe talk of a new enlightenment maybe at that period going on in which, you know, suddenly people could design over their own knowledge trajectories. Of course, within its limits of, of the categories that they are and, uh, you know, resources that they are accessible. But I think this was a very particular moment in which mm, a lot of political movements resulted out of the fact that suddenly knowledge was, was differently made available and accessible through um, other and new forms of media. Yes, it's very interesting because on the one hand, I mean, of course, I agree with everything you say. On the other hand, let's say this is a couple of decades ago and in a, in a way we're still trapped within the same system that Cedric was in a way uh, criticizing or pointing out. And I'm wondering in this current situation where we are still in inverted commas dealing with this kind of physical the physical apparatus of the parliament, of the commission as a space, as an architectural object. It's interesting that the fact that it's a kind of decentralized system at the moment still causes all this trouble, no? From what I hear, uh, I mean, there's a lot of complaints, which to a certain extent it's understandable, but also could probably easily be overcome. So I'm wondering, 
uh, since we're talking about this also in the context of uh, architecture and spatial planning, what's your what's your view on this? Um, I think it is it is really in a way um, related to the to the idea how architecture could contribute to the design of geopolitics in a broader sense. And of course, this is not an easy task. I don't think like you know <laughs> one could easily come up with a new symbolic. Uh, structure here on the parliament square and then saying like hey that's the new symbol for Europe and everyone would subscribe to it and you know we have a different uh, political system going on or a, a much stronger form of Europe as it was probably the, the a dream of um, uh, of an exhibition uh, curated in 2004 here in, in Brussels so um, I think this is a this is a highly interesting but also complex task because it's it's really asking about like how can we um, think of uh, uh, kind of a media standards also that allow for certain I don't know on the one hand um, political control but also on the other hand for political development um, maybe to give you an example um, back then when the when I talked about this you know TV distribution of media of European news etc there was really a discussion about like, okay how can we define the media standards that this type of information will not reach actually beyond um, uh, beyond the, the iron curtain and it was really kind of this uh, pushing for um, a pal secam uh, difference in which you know televisions on uh, that were actually that had this pal standard would be able to receive the signal and and show it in color. So back then you really had this difference between the PAL and SECAM standard and the European Parliament was actually pushing for the PAL standard in order for uh, the Eastern European countries not being able to receive this signal. Um, so while you know the PAL standard could uh, on the television could show the signal in color, um, the SECAM standard would either show like just black and white uh, images of it or uh, and at the same time not you won't he you wouldn't hear the uh, the audio of it or you could hear the audio without actually seeing the image <laughs> so it was uh, it was really a kind of you know a technical standard that would define until where messages could be reached and not and of course with that uh, situation of you know the internet and information being available globally etc we think we have moved away from that but actually not <laughs> you know um, still, there are ways in which you can control information being uh, reached out to certain areas and not in others. You can still kind of um, have a control upon which um, you know you block certain IP addresses, for instance, of being accessible, etc. Or not. So, in a way, there is still a control on that. But um, the question is, um, Marcus, if and there I, I agree with you, it becomes really challenging to really think about right and what's what's really the role of architecture in there of like what's really the the, the kind of spatial design equivalent in which you could think of okay like then how does architecture react in that and um, I think what we are experiencing now is that architecture moved especially in the context of the European Union um, into another category and it was also pushed again by um, uh, by the European Commission, namely in the in the green European Bauhaus, you know, <laughs> or in the new European Bauhaus, and I call it green because it follows the Green Deal. Um, 
And there suddenly architectures needs to become a new actor for Europe again um, in the way of creating propositions that suddenly you know, allow for a paradigmatic shift on the energy level um, in, in Europe. I would even go somehow further with what uh, Marcus and you, Dennis, said actually previously. Going back to the quote, architecture is a medium among other medium. Then stating this, if architecture is a medium in our era of communication, then are the institutional buildings the kind of Scott Brown's and Venturi's decorated shed eventually? And even why would we keep using an architecture of symbols then? Um, do we actually need this architecture of symbols? Then we could even more decentralize the institutions on the middle long term somehow. And what do you think about this hypothesis? Yeah, like I think if you start from the from the very kind of you know definition that was um, um, put into play into place by by um, German media history scholars and scholars from media archaeology um, around the school of, of Friedrich Kittler, let's say in the in the late nineties, you would say, all right, medium is defined by three characteristics. It's defined by storing distributing and processing and you know seeing actually these buildings as a medium of, of politics that would either store information process or transmit information um, it becomes actually more than just a decorated chat <laughs> you know it becomes really a um, a medium that functions in order to to literally make european politics run um, and one um, kind of a key example in which i I actually came across the fact that regarding architecture as a medium and not as a symbolic decorated shed becomes actually more evident, most evident, or it became more evident for me, was the design of the European Council in the 70s. Um, because for that building, the European Council didn't ask architects at first stance to you know, come up with a new symbolic design. And there was this famous discourse um, around, uh, you know, really pushed by Maurice Collot and Leon Krier back then, um, you know, for the reconstruction of the European city that suddenly need to be, you know, identifiable by European citizenship. And they came up with the design for the Kirchberg in order to give the European institutions a new presence and a new identity and a new kind of, um, um, you know, value uh, corpus relating. Which was, for the record, full of very historicist, archetypal, architectural elements. I mean. Absolutely, absolutely. I, they, they kind of, you know, it was really eclectic in terms of um, getting back to uh, historic references and kind of, you know, pushing them in their design for their postmodern uh, language of uh, neo-historicism or whatever. Um, but in that point, they really missed actually the point that uh, architecture is also a medium and it has to kind of ensure a certain function inside the building. Because the European Council they didn't take this design really serious. They asked actually one, statist um, one statistics service, Baucentrum Rotterdam, and another management service, um, SEGOS, um, in, in, in Brussels, to come up with, first of all, first and foremost, a proposal in which the council as a political institution could work in the most efficient manner. So what they started off actually was to... Um, to to uh, to speculate over scenarios of how let's say a growth of 
um, member countries of how many languages would be spoken inside this building would define uh, the spatial amount and the need of space that you would need to have for that um, uh, for that you know European Council. So they came up with a kind of a cybernetic approach of you know with different feedback loops designing these spaces and bubble diagrams and everything in flowcharts in order to at the end come up with a really diagrammatic architecture from which you could actually have you know you could literally uh, trace back uh, charts. Uh, diagrams, flowcharts, <laughs> cybernetic feedback loops, and then architectural floor plans, in which the question of the facade was entirely irrelevant. Like, really, it was for 10 years, this question of the facade didn't play any role. And the building was so complex, and it was the building site itself was going on from 1974, you find the first proposals, and 1991, that building was actually inaugurated. So, <laughs> I mean, a building process of almost 20 years, you could know that there's a lot of stuff going on and changes in between and this building that need to be adapted to new member states and new media and everything else that was going on in, in terms of changes. And only in the, in the mid 80s, suddenly there was an expert team um, asking, hey, what's, what's actually going on with the facade? You know, you're building this thing already, but, but how this building is look like? <laughs> it wasn't decided actually in the, in the 80s. And then the architects claimed, yeah, it should represent Europe because it has a turned E in the facade. So if you look at it, like <laughs> the facade is actually a, a E kind of shift a turn by 90 degrees. Um, in a way, like for me, this was such a paradigmatic example in which you think like, all right, all those categories in which we kind of used to conceive political architectures as a symbolic container suddenly here don't work. Like the buildings follow entirely different logics and entirely different design parameters mm, than, uh, let's say, the aesthetic appearance of it. And um, that's how, how somehow made me, also in my research methodology, uh, shift away from trying to figure out, you know, how do, do these buildings represent Europe, but rather look more closely into how these buildings actually shape Europe. Because they do, in the, in the way how, you know, um, decision-making processes are organized in the in the buildings themselves. But so I think this is a, an extremely interesting point. So this kind of absence of the facade, which I'm actually a really big fan of. So let's say pieces or objects of architecture that are the result of planning, dealing with content rather than form. But um, at the same time, of course, the kind of examples that you're giving, they are, um, I mean, not the example itself is problematic, but the way that they arrived at the outcome is slightly problematic. And it actually, in a kind of funny way, reminds me of the University of Luxembourg and the campus, because it's also um, a series of buildings where, although there is, let's say, a kind of visible facade, or there has been some thinking going into the development of different facade systems. The original idea was one which was based on the kind of uh, on process design. And from my point of view, it, it failed quite badly. And um, one of the things that they tried to do was to basically let algorithms decide on how particular groups, how particular uh, faculty and their students, how particular seminars and so on so are allocated over the different kind of uh, spaces available. 
and also depending on spatial necessity. But of course, what the algorithm or the system, let's say, is not aware of is that uh, the practices that are at play, both on a kind of human scale, but also in terms of how things change, let's say, even within one academic year. So um, when you talk about this, um, this kind of architectural element, I was wondering, do you think there is like a real link to, let's say, democratic representation? Or was that always also the idea in mind? Or was it thought of more, let's say, as a kind of um, McKinseyfication, let's say, of politics? Mm. Yeah, the aspect about democratic you know, representation, it, um, it played for the European Parliament, for instance, a much stronger role than for the European Council. It played for the European Commission, not such a big role at all, actually. Um, and it particularly started to play a role in a broader discussion uh, with, the, with the Nice Treaty in 2001. Because suddenly you had um, a discussion about... Um, a constitution. Ah, yeah, exactly. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Once again, um, it was really a discussion going on in 2001 in the Nice Treaty whether you would, we would have a European constitution going on. And it's supposed to be established by 2004. Um, and uh, you had petitions going on in the, in the Netherlands and in France that voted against the European constitution. And particularly with that discussion of the European constitution, it raised the discussion about like, how does the European Union represent itself? So that kind of democratic symbolicism, if you want to say. So it was really raised with that kind of act of the constitution itself. Before that, it didn't play a role that much in the 1970s and 80s, actually, of how, you know, what's the symbolicism of these buildings, etc. Um, and, uh, and it only came, came into discussion at that time. And that's the point where um, there was this famous Romani Prodi, uh, Romano Prodi and Guy Verhofstadt um, uh, um, proposal of Brussels as a capital. They hired Rem Kohlhaas to design, to come up with a proper design for that. Um, Kohlhaas, interestingly enough, also came up not only with a kind of a square design for, for the European um, uh, era here, for the European area, but also uh, with a barcode. And the barcode, again, is something like, you know, it relates, it's actually a very clever design because it relates to, um, to the economic union, it relates to um, uh, different forms of media again, it relates to the circulation of goods and services. So it relates to more than maybe what our kind of national categories of uh, symbolic representation would kind of relate to. And, and what, you, what you mentioned with this, you know, algorithms designing a space that in the end the user group starts to changing and actually it starts to they start to implement maybe um, certain assumptions, um, also problematic assumptions in what you give as an input data um, or, or what what are you basing your developments upon in, uh, in which the kind of, you know, soft power aspect of um, of something like a community or something like different user behavior, etc., does not um, is not necessarily compatible with. So, and that's where that's where I, I would I would totally agree with you. It comes becomes problematic at some point. Of course, if it's it's somehow interesting to to see of you know a Europe in the making without representation, 
Um, but nevertheless, at some point, especially with these developments of, of European constitutions, the different forms of, you know, uh, further extensions also of the European communities, um, maybe a race of, of right-wing parties, especially on populism um, in mid-Europe, etc. Like, it really poses also different problems. And then you end up with that problem of, right, like how architecture as a kind of still very, um, very static medium could relate and could be actualized and could be um, dealing with this with these new new problems, which are actually also you know demanded by a new political community. I would uh, like to return for a moment to the identity that OMA designed uh, that you just mentioned, the barcode flag and the barcode uh, in general, which of course is super interesting because it's also kind of open-ended structure in terms of uh, potentially more but also uh, in theory as we've seen with brexit less member states so um i was wondering as much as i'm aware i mean it was originally commissioned by prodi but then it was never formally used by the european union but only during the uh, austrian presidency of the eu council right so what was the reason that prodi in the end decided against using it do you know this hmm. yeah very good question very good question because it was never used as a formal, you know, as a as a new formal representation. There were a few adaptations of it, like if you look at um, also at the Quartier Leopold in Brussels, that sometimes in the facades you find back different barcode color shapes. Um, so suddenly, suddenly it was a kind of an architectural reference, but it was never uh, used. Personally, I think it was also kind of abandoned after the constitution failed. Um, because that really showed um, a kind of a fact to the to the leaders of the European Union that somehow a broader political community is actually not ready yet for such a for such a shift, and um, and I think it was probably that moment in which such a yeah such a proposal also in the end in the end failed um, because it really felt like yeah it was it wasn't adaptive yet to to what we are actually facing and that's where um i mean Rem Kolas is of course a very clever actor in that <laughs> in that sense and i think like what he what he then um uh, uh tried to to push for was actually this initiative of the new narratives for europe um so you know there was this interesting discussion in which he he discussed with peter sloterdijk a session that was hosted in the in the Netherlands embassy, in the Dutch embassy in Berlin, um, and uh, which was moderated by Stefan Trübe back then, and Sloterdijk insisted something upon like on the fact that yes, while um, other political, let's say, formations after the post-war or even before had actually a story to tell. Europe didn't have any story. Like, you know, in the US you had, let's say, the story of the self-made man, um, a big narration that would kind of push for change. Um, Europe didn't have such a, such a thing. And the fact that actually Europe lacks a narrative um, is something I think we are still struggling on today with. Like, um, and... Uh, and that's where where Cole has pushed this, this this initiative. All right, like what are the new narratives that we we can actually have for Europe and how we can narrate that 
um, that bigger bigger entity. And to my point of view, uh, this new European Bauhaus is somehow, you know, at least in the in the in the bigger architectural or in the community of architecture and built environment, um, a narrative that somehow tries to push for for a new change or to try to push for for a new development that that somehow wasn't coming out of the built environment for a long for a long time. In this case, no, I just a, a brief point about the European Bauhaus. Now that you mentioned that, I I have the feeling that there was this attempt of collect. Uh, somehow um, ideas to build a narrative uh, and but nevertheless it's also a top-down approach that intends to be democratic in some way but at the end it ends up in a let's say in a void narrative that no nobody really knows what it's it's about so we, we think we have the idea but nobody really knows what a new European Bauhaus really is so maybe this this is an, an attempt of okay trying to adapt to this uh, new way of uh, grabbing information structuring them, them uh, all the data in, in a kind of certain logic but it's still yet to come the result uh, i I'm, i want to know uh, it it triggers your curiosity of you have any anticipation based on the previous events how this will end, uh, Dennis? Yeah, that's a very good. <laughs> it's a very good question. How this would end? Uh, I honestly don't know, and I hope it doesn't just end with uh, with the, the end of let's say the legislative period of, of Ursula von der Leyen. But um, in a way, also the European uh, Commission itself doesn't have a very clear idea of you know what that new european bauhaus should be and there are like uh, entries launched for uh, new proposals new competition entries etc and new ideas so it is something that is in the making um and that that fact upon being in the making is actually a characteristic that is inherent uh, in the european project itself and again i think this is very crucial because it relates to to what um how the european community has been shaped at the very beginning um, it has been shaped by famously, uh, you know, Robert Schumann and Jean Monnet, with a proposal that was back then radically um, opposed to what uh, Altiero Spinelli was asking. Altiero Spinelli was asking in the 50s for a proposal to have a European constitution defined at the beginning, to have actually a very clear set and a very fixed, you know, territory upon what is. What is Europe? <laughs> Back then it would be maybe easier to be defined by the six member states that were present um, in that um, in the European Union but or in the European co uh, coal and steel community. But uh, Monet and Schumann, they pushed for a Europe in small ste steps, what they called. They pushed for a Europe that would be, you know, being able to adapt, to increase, to, you know, um, um, uh, implement more and more legislative um, uh, areas to have a much broader impact upon like what could be integrated in that bigger project and in a way mm, it was somehow you know a concept that was extremely liberal or if you want to say so neoliberal because it was um, giving uh, setting up values in which then member states needed to adapt 
Like if you want to be part of, you need to adapt that. If you want to be part of, you need to adapt that. But you would have this and this benefits out of it. Um, and it is somehow, you know, a political strategy or development strategy in which um, the thing that develops is, is highly monstrous because, you know, it's, it's a bureaucratic monster of many, many, many acts and many, many, many legislations and many norms and many, you know, um, regulations. To which, like, if you adapt, you get, you will be profit, <laughs> profited from. And I think, like, taking that as a metaphor, you know, for the, for the, for the new Bauhaus, um, a kind of approach. I think what is really aimed at is uh, to define a, a set of European design norms and regulations on a broader scale that at the end of the day um, uh, point at uh, uh, a new energetic development to have you know, policies that, that foster kind of a way of sustainable building design, etc. To which then Architects in the different European countries would need to adapt because if not, they wouldn't get funding or they wouldn't be they wouldn't follow the the new norms or they wouldn't kind of follow the new regulations. So this is actually a crucial moment because this is a moment in which um, designers can literally participate in in shaping these norms, and that's a tricky question: who is participating? Like who is who is there as a as a let's say as an acting voice in that? in that process i mean on the one hand yes uh, who's participating but also um, i think it's let's say at least slightly optimistic to think that a set of norms will start to create a common identity yeah that's a that's a, a tricky question but um, if you think of if you think of just the the schengen agreement for example you know at the end of the day this is nothing just then just like a set of of norms that are given to certain passports that <laughs> allow for the possibility of um, you know me coming to Luxembourg without actually passing millions of borders and controls etc um, that's also nothing more than a set of norms that upon which a few member states agreed upon so it's I would say on the one hand, I agree, it's optimistic. But on the other hand, it creates something more than, you know, just the, just the regulations themselves. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, yet, for example, going back to the OMA barcode design, of course, what was interesting about this was that somehow it managed to include, even if kind of marginally, one kind of national object, which is the individual flags, as a kind of, let's say, colorful identity within the larger kind of landscape of colored identities, let's say. And I think this is something maybe that brings us to the scale of territory, because I think um, somehow territory is really underestimated in this whole debate. Um, I mean, uh, many years ago now, uh, we were doing, actually during the uh, presidency of uh, Slovenia, of the EU Council, I was doing a, a project together with School of Missing Studies in New York, which is called East Coast Europe. And there we were basically speculating on this question of the role of territory and the potential lack of identity building due to the fact that the eastern coast, this kind of imaginary east coast, if, if Europe, if the European Union had an east coast, what would this east coast, that specific line be? What would this let's say, outside uh, border 
be and therefore what would this mean to the territory of the union and therefore kind of uh, space of imagination let's say and of course one of the things that we identified was that if you think within this logic one problem is that that line changed so many times or was so unstable that a kind of common identity was kind of difficult to develop let's say in a way as if you would imagine um, kids growing up in a particular area of course one thing that's quite important for them when they're young i.e like a young identity that there's also some kind of stability to certain not all factors need to be stable but some need to be fact uh, some of these factors need to be stable so i think this would also be a question from my side how you feel about this the role of territory mm. like um that's what i think it's a very crucial crucial question that you ask um, about the role of territory and that's how you know my, my PhD has the, the subtitle or the title like designing Europe um, politics or the architecture of politics uh, territory politics and institutions so territory is actually a, an aspect or a category that I that I tried to cover in the PhD because indeed it is always a geopolitical development and this this, this geopolitical developments they always relate to territorial questions. For instance, um, just as a, as a basic example in which um, the aspect especially of, um, of the former colonial countries uh, in North Africa or in throughout Africa and, and elsewhere were integral part of um, the European or the development in the, in the 50s, for instance. Um, you know, when the, when the Euro, Euratom was Well, was was shaped um, a kind of community that sh that should kind of distribute um, uh, the distribution of, of knowledge and uh, uranium resources among uh, member states for peaceful use. It was highly dependent upon the fact that uranium came from the Belgian Congo, and it wasn't a question to any of any European citizens questioning that assumption that the community was constructed upon. So the territory that was built upon, you know, in that kind of six member states territory included a much larger uh, uh, colonial colonial exploitation territory um, that was an integral part of the whole territorial planning. So, you know, this, uh, this aspect of a much wider territory than the one that is actually associated with the member states is actually from the very beginning, I think this has been a crucial question. And regarding this, I think there is a very, and, and how that comes back to your question about identity. I think um, there is a very interesting essay from Jacques Derrida written in 91 with the kind of larger first uh, European extension um, uh, towards the East. Um, Derrida is describing in the in its essay is titled The Other Heading, um, is describing Europe as a, as a cup, as a peninsula of Asia, uh, actually. Like, historically, Europe is actually nothing more than just a peninsula. And that peninsula um, has its, its, its characteristic that it, um, it's changing its borders and fragments with uh, uh, the height of the altitude of, of the water, of the sea level. And, and that, you know seeing Europe as a, in this, in this kind of metaphoric sense, as a peninsula that 
mm, changes its its borders with the with the level of the sea is something I think also that that Derrida then then uses in its construction of identity. Like it had never something in which it could construct an identity from itself. It always constructed its identity in opposition or in towards the reflection of the other. So the other, that's what Derrida claims, is always an integral part of what that identity actually is. It's not related to a land which one kind of owns or refers to. It's reflect. It's really um, uh, caused by the relation towards the other or the relation towards otherness. So the other is actually an integral part of, of that uh, European identity. And I think that really deconstructs actually um, a political identity that is claimed or that is really uh, uh, shaped upon like a really fixed construction of borders and that is a, is, a, is a kind of relating to a very fixed notion of land to what one belongs and what doesn't belong to. But um, it is much more a kind of rela- relational concept of identity, um, which I think maybe also for the for the European project is actually an interesting concept to be considered as such. And regarding this, especially now I have a very burning question to ask. Why does it seem so hard to federalize Europe when we talk about regions and territories? Mm. Well, there are of course um there are of course federalist projects that, that try to, you know, um, give regions, for instance, a much stronger voice. There is the Council of the Regions also in the, in, among the European institutions. Um, I think it is still so hard because there are still national, you know, projects that have, that always want to um, uh, kind of preserve their, um, uh, their, yeah, their high, their integrity and their, um, uh, uh, their autonomy in, uh, upon deciding upon certain topics, and in, I think, in this sense, mm, in this sense, it's very it's very difficult because some nation states don't want to give up some privileges of of decision or in the decision making process. That's why it's that's why it's it's so hard to to give up that uh, that federalist um, or to, to 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 kind of merge into that federalist idea. I think that's a it's a very uh, short question, a uh, short answer to your question, but I, I would assume it's it's really it's really that that um, on a broader geopolitical scale, it's really national interests that are still prevailing over um, another form of integrity. I still have one, uh, maybe last question from my side, which is actually concerning again the uh, the scale of the spatial much less maybe on a kind of territorial uh, scale, but more of a kind of building scale or almost, let's say, interior scale when it comes to uh, parliamentary or uh, similar settings. What do you think could the European Union actually spatially benefit from? Is there something, like, have you identified in, in your research a kind of particular lack of of a, a kind of spatial demand, let's say, or something that you would uh, like to see spatially represented somehow? Like I think, and that maybe comes comes closer to what Francella asked about this federalist project, 
um, is what one could could think of is really um, the, the possible power of a network of houses of European citizens in a, in, on a European scale, uh, in which you think, all right, it's not just parliamentarians that are mostly highly unperceivable in the, in the national media um, that are representing European citizens, but there is actually physically a space that relates to European politics maybe in every region or maybe in every city or maybe in every, you know, in, in every community. So, and that, that idea of maybe a network of European houses for, or European citizens could be um, probably another kind of spatial dimension that would add up and, and construct something different than the constellation we are having now um, in this sense. This could probably, like as a spatial intervention, also have like really strong political consequences. Yeah, this is super interesting. I mean, it sounds almost like a kind of embassy, but on a more local scale, which reminds me actually of this typology of the transition hub, which is uh, something that's that I guess will eventually become uh, extremely important in the whole transition project. But uh, yeah, that's another it's another topic. <laughs> That's another <Yes>. conversation. <laughs> I also have a last question, Dennis, regarding this, uh, let's say, quest of um, centrality that you have somehow uh, been uncovering by your research. And it's it's about the construction of that identity also in the, in the limits or in the periphery of what means uh, uh, Europe. Because up to now, we have been discussing about these complexes, how they are carefully designed and also communicated. But uh, uh, the, um, the intervention of new technology also opened the possibility of building this new kind of emphasis of what means to be part of this, uh, let's say, common project. It comes to my mind, the strategy that I have seen in, in a... Um, in some uh, city government, specifically in Barcelona, in which the mayor is actively, let's say, uh, transmitting an image of building the city from the street level. And right now, also bringing into that uh, narrative the presence of the maybe the first uh, women to become president in Spain, which is the, the, the actual vice president, uh, Yolanda Diaz, in, uh, in Spain. They have, let's say, starting building a narrative of, okay, I'm governing this city at the street level, but you are also part of this adventure. I'm really curious if that could be a, a, a new structure that it talks directly to the citizens of, of that, okay, I'm really part of it. And, and that's a possibility where we as architects somehow can... Uh, interfering in building that narrative. I'm, I'm just uh, curious about the possibility of building that identity in the periphery and not only into these uh, headquarters. Is yeah, what possible? I think of, um, I mean, I mentioned now this house, this network of houses for European citizens um, as, as one example, but I think more in the in architectural terms, um, maybe something that can be useful is what Keller Easterling defined in her book of extra statecraft as the switch or you know the network hub or um, 
um, a possibility to design something that changes uh, things on several scales. So if I understand you right, exactly, if you're able to design maybe something that acts upon a very bottom-up local scale as uh, a medium that changes other media, um, we could really... Uh, we could really have that transitional moment from you know from a lo local scale to a much broader uh, scale up on up on um, up on Brussels. So that's why I think like those those initiatives can have a very strong power if they're exactly not like you know acting upon the centrality of defining a new European headquarters or like working symbolically from this and this space, um, but uh, work in a much more yeah let's say anarchic manner of of uh, of integrating political change through a particular form of uh, of a design that would be something i would be really keen on on experimenting this could be actually a very interesting design studio to to work on that fantastic let's do it yeah let's do that <laughs> you just listened to the third episode of cultures of assembly a podcast and research trajectory of the new chair of urban regeneration at the University of Luxembourg. We would like to thank our guest, Denise Paul. This podcast series is a collective work. At the chair of urban regeneration, we produce immersive research by exploring site-specific materials alongside publics and their narratives. We also share experiences by engaging into conversations with international researchers, artists, curators, politicians, economists and activists. The soundtrack was made by Ugne and Maria. Thank you for listening and stay alert.